It is our desire for the Word to speak again in this time. So I would ask you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we'll look at verses 14 through 16. If you need to use the blue Bible in the pew, you'll find that on page 992. 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 through 16, as we continue our study on the church. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. What were some of the rules of your home growing up? Maybe they weren't listed anywhere, but you know that there was a certain standard of behavior that was expected of you on account of your last name and where you lived. Even if you didn't know those rules, they became more familiar to you when you would visit someone else's home and realize that they have rules of some kind. It's normally simple, small things like whether or not you take your shoes off at the door or leave them on. For some, it's prayer before meals. Many families, there's always prayer before a meal. For some families, they only do it at dinner. Some often forget at breakfast. For some, maybe it's room access. I remember growing up and visiting some of my friends' homes, and the entire house was just one big free-for-all. We could go wherever we wanted. But at my house, you stayed away from mom and dad's bedroom and bathroom. That was not a place to play. It was a house rule. Never printed anywhere, but unspoken and well-known. Chores can fall in this category. Entertainment can uh, fall in this category. Even how people dress can fall into this category. It's just certain standards and expectations. Most have them, few think of them. And this is true not only of the home, but it's also true of restaurants. Uh, We approach the dining experience at Five Guys, Burgers and Fries, differently than we would the Capitol Grill. You don't throw junk on the floor at Capitol Grill, but you can throw the peanut shells at Five Guys. The same is true of business. We go into certain places of business, and we recognize that some have more of a mom-and-pop feel, and if we want to get something done, it's on the basis of relationship. For other people, there's this mega-corporate structure of some kind, and we have to follow the right channels to get what we actually want. It's true of restaurants, it's true of businesses, it's true of homes, and it's also true of local churches. There's an unwritten set of rules or guidelines or standards that are in every church, rarely spoken, generally assumed. 
These unwritten rules can be typically perceived by the appearance of the church itself. You want to figure out what a church values, just kind of see how it decorates. In some places you go, you find Gothic architecture, candles, statues, maybe a pipe organ, choirs and with robes and stained glass and uh, ornate pulpits. Other places have a less traditional flair, maybe more trendy. Uh, it's, this is a new category, by the way. Churches have never looked like this until the re- most recent 70 years. But the new architecture is that of a theater, maybe fold-down seating of some kind, an amphitheater kind of a setup. Uh, lots of technology, in some cases an LED back screen. Uh, a band instead of a pipe organ, uh, a stage lighting, maybe even a smoke machine. And with that comes a certain set of uh, conduct. There's a standard that's assumed in the trendy church, and there's a standard of behavior that's assumed for the traditional church. But it is indeed the trendy church that rules the day. It is communicating a whole heap of unwritten rules, and whether we realize it or not, friends, it's conditioned us all. The experts now in church tell us that the gathering, the church, should be fun, fresh, and exciting. And ways that we should keep the gathering fun and fresh and exciting are by playing upbeat music in the narthex or the lobby area. Uh, We need to make sure that we have PowerPoint presentations with lots of pictures. And even one magazine that I read said, make sure you include as many babies and puppies as possible because that keeps people interested. Uh, One that I read actually recommended that instead of shaking hands before the service, sometime in the middle of the service, you should encourage people to turn around and give each other a 10-second karate chop massage. That that will keep things different. It'll it'll give it a different vibe. Or maybe it's even themed services. Uh, There's Hawaiian-themed services. There's carnival-themed services. There's Texas barbecue-themed services. And don't forget the fact that in some churches it's actually expected that occasionally everyone receives a free gift on the way out. It could be cupcakes. It could be a book. It could just be a neat trinket or tickets to the movies. These are regular things that are promoted in church as we know it today. And one author has traced this phenomenon over the last 50 to 70 years, and he calls it the process of juvenilization. Juvenilization. We are, are, are existing in the era of the juvenilization of the church. He defines it as follows. I find it fascinating. He says, while such antics would have been unheard of 50 years ago, the modern church has suffered from this process by which the religious beliefs, practices, and developmental characteristics of adolescents became accepted as appropriate for Christians of all ages. What are some of the symptoms that you or I have been affected by such juvenilization? Listen out for them. Worship that is designed to entertain and that relegates the congregation to the role of a spectator. So you're looking for a performance on stage. Another sign. Songs on Sunday morning that resemble romantic love songs. uh, What I call boyfriend Jesus songs. You could take the same words of the song, they give you an emotional feel, but they don't even necessarily have to apply to Jesus. You could sing them on your most recent date. Third, suspicion of creed and doctrine. Like, 
historical articulations of doctrine people get really weirded out by. They don't like that. Fourth, crusading and idealistic social activism and political engagement. People who say, the church isn't having an impact. We need to be more involved in, the, in politics. We need to be more involved in the community. When people are clamoring for political and community involvement, it could be a sign of juvenilization. Uh, another one is the diminution of church offices. Like, pastors, deacons, who needs that? We just need a good CEO in place, and he needs to hire his own staff, and we need to let this thing move forward. Or, the last one, an overload of programs for the youth of the church. Our church is not this way, but I've been in many places where parents are a slave to the social calendar for their children as they have to be at various activities throughout the week. These are signs of juvenilization. And the question for us is, are these communicating what Christ himself actually intended for the church? Is trendy? Does it have something to offer as it informs our behavior in God's church? Hey, let me ask the other question. Does traditional have something to offer when it comes to informing our behavior of what Christ expects of a church? Just because it's old, is it good? Does that mean it's good? Just because it's new, does that necessarily mean it's bad? How in the world does God expect us to behave in His local church? That is the question before us today. Culture conditions us to behave one way, but what exactly are God's house rules? He clarifies those in 1 Timothy. In His Word broadly, but 1 Timothy in particular, you're going to see, as you read through the opening chapters of 1 Timothy, we don't have time to do it today, that God is actually informing the type of behavior that He expects to see in His local church. Now, we know from our study up to this point that God's Word speaks to the church generally, implicitly. Like, we've seen that it was God's plan from the very beginning to create a group of people, and He wanted to organize those people into representative bodies, families, temples, if you will, that would manifest Him. But within each of those local realms, within each of those local assemblies, guess what? There's a set of house rules, and guess who determines them? Not the pastors, not the people, but the Lord of the church Himself. In 1 Timothy, there were several things going on that Paul provides as concrete rules. There were several concerns. If you look in chapter 1, for example, you find that one of the things that's on his list of house rules is you need to be concerned for the gospel. People were mixing up the law and the gospel, and so in chapter 1, Paul spends a lot of time on that. Another one of God's house rules, the things that he just really focuses on, is on a priority of praying for the salvation of the nations. Churches should be known as a place of prayer. They should be praying for all kinds of people. Uh, we just did that actually earlier. It should be a priority in their gatherings. They should be praying for the salvation of all men. Another rule that he gives in the church leading up to this particular passage is that men and women should embrace their various roles. Men, for example, should never be fighting in the church. Now, I've only seen that happen one time. But it seems like what was happening in this church actually is that men were fist fighting with one another. I think we all know that that would be a no-no in God's church. But that was going on in Ephesus. But something else that was going on in Ephesus that actually does happen in churches today more commonly 
is women usurping their appropriate role in the church. For example, Paul is telling them you need to dress modestly, stop trying to draw so much attention to yourself. That was a concern in the church at Ephesus. And another one was, he tells the women, hey, be sure that you don't take on a position of teaching and leadership in the church. You serve, you serve with the brothers and sisters in Christ, but God intends for his church to be led by qualified men. Which leads to his next and final house rule before getting to this Bible verse. And that is that properly qualified leadership, men who know the Bible and men who live godly lives, would be in charge of the day-to-day operations of the church. That's 1 Timothy 1 and 2. Having listed some of these specific house rules, it is at this point that Paul is going to give us two pictures Two pictures of the church that will underscore the importance of obeying the rules that he himself has set out. He wants you to think of his church more like Capitol Grill, less like Five Guys. He wants you to think of it more like the military, less like preschool. If God is in charge of this thing, what does it look like and how does that affect us? So two pictures that inform appropriate action within God's church Uh, The first is that the church is a place of God's presence. The second is the church is a place for the gospel's protection. A place of God's presence, a place for the gospel's protection. So let's look at the first one. You and I will act appropriately as a local church when we see it as a place of God's presence. Look at verses 14 and 15 again. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay... You may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. Now, Paul's there for a moment. Paul is actually acknowledging that he's going to get there and he wants to straighten out a lot of the mess that's going on in Ephesus. But in his tenure, because of just the way travel was at that time, you couldn't just hop on a jet and fly over to Ephesus. Like, he knows that he's going to be delayed and he said, This rule of conduct, this standard of behavior is so important that I'm going to go ahead and send this thing ahead of time so that you can go ahead and start putting it into practice. Even though Timothy is a younger man, even though he's a little timid, he says, Timothy, you've got to enforce the rules now. The gospel is under attack. You need to straighten things out. And so what we have here is actually a revelation of what God expects from his church. Part of it is circumstantial. It's unique to that culture. Part of it is atemporal. It applies all times and ages. And what we have here is God's house rules. Notice in your text, in verse 15, if you delay, I'm writing that you may know how one, I like this, ought to behave. How one ought to behave. It just sounds like something my dad would say. You ought to behave this way. We're talking about behavior. We're talking about regular conduct in God's gathered people. What does that look like? Well, in this particular case, in verse 15, he is referring to these things. I'm writing these things, the things that I've already written to you and the stuff that I will write to you. These are the rules. And you will be able to follow these rules insofar as you embrace the church as a place that is characterized by God's presence. You say, Justin, I don't see God's presence anywhere there. Well, notice the metaphor. He says, how you ought to behave in what? The household of God. 
the household of God, the church of the living God, he wants them to actually embrace the fact that this local gathering in Ephesus, he's not talking about all churches everywhere, he's talking about this gathering in Ephesus represents God's special presence. It is his household. There is a certain standard of conduct expected in God's household. You do this with your children. There's a certain standard of conduct for them inside versus their standard of conduct outside, right? And we see it in other ways. Not only is it inside and outside, but you think of someone who's been in the military, there is a certain decorum expected of someone in uniform and a certain decorum expected of one out of uniform. Uh, There's a difference between how someone acts in a country club versus how someone acts in a gym, I actually do this with my own children. I, I try not to be sarcastic all the time. But they're old enough now where they can embrace the sarcasm. This is a regular practice for us when we go to the library. I'll take all five of them. Typically, I'm trying to give Tanya a break. And before we get into the door, I'll have this little speech. Right. All right, kids. I want you to pretend that we're going to be in a library. And that God, I mean, excuse me, and that they actually expect you to be quiet and to look at books and not run around. I don't know what it is, but something about pretending to be in a library like really captures their interest and they actually do well in a library. (laughs) It's as if Paul would be saying, if I were to put a sarcastic spin, hey, Church at Ephesus, uh, Faith Bible Church in Naples, I want you to pretend that this is the household of God. How would that affect your behavior? If you were walking into this place on a Sunday morning realizing that this was God's household, what would be different about the way that you normally act? Household of God is an interesting phrase. It has a deep and rich history. When we hear household, we typically think our own family. And the the bad part about that is our own families are not as official and as structured as the Greco-Roman family. You need to understand that in that time, when somebody hears the phrase, the household of God, they are thinking of something very official, something very organized, something very important. All of us would indeed agree that the family is important for sure, but you need to understand that in that particular context, the Greco-Roman household was the foundation of the empire. It consisted typically of the pater, or where we get our term patriarch, and then they would also call him, because of his official position, the kurios, or the lord of the house. He sat at the top. It wasn't egalitarian. It was official and structured. Everything centered around the patriarch, and multiple generations of people lived in the same family. So typically the way it works for us, people get married in their 20s and 30s, And then kind of move off and then start their own families. There, when you get married, guess where you go? You move back into the home. The home expands and the guy at the top of the the whole hierarchy is running things. And it's not just physical family. Guess who also is included? The household included slaves as well. So you need to think of the Greco-Roman household more like a small business and less like your, your own nuclear family of four. It was an official thing. Everybody bought into the trade. You didn't have several different jobs. People didn't go off and pursue their own career. 
If someone was, for example, a tanner, they were always a tanner. They grew up doing that. If someone was a farmer, they were always a farmer. If someone was a butcher, everyone in the family contributed to the butcher business. To be a part of the household meant that everyone was buying into whatever it is that the patriarch had established for that particular place. In fact, the metaphor was so strong that Caesar himself would take it and he would apply it to the empire. Saying that the empire was his household. And that he was the pater. And that he was the curios. And that he was the Lord. And that is why, friends... The classic Christian confession was Jesus is Lord. It was standing in contrast to something, and that was Caesar is Lord. God's house is ruled by him. Sure, it implies safety, and it implies security. It can imply warmth, but mainly it implies responsibility. You have an obligation, a responsibility to live out that which the Lord of the house wants more than anything else. Paul is reminding the church at Ephesus, look, this thing is not about you. It's not about your cultural preferences. It is about what the Lord of the house actually wants. You must keep this in mind. It is not your household. It is God's household. It's like when my parents used to tell me, you need to remember your last name. God's telling them, you need to remember my name. This place concerns me and my purposes. Practically, friends, I would say that we all have opportunity, self-included, of recognizing the privilege of this gathering. There's a certain decorum that is expected here. And I am not talking, by the way, this isn't some implicit way of me trying to say how you should dress for church. God has bigger fish to fry, if you will. <laughs> There's bigger things that he's concerned about. Contextually, in, in, if you read 1 Timothy, the things that he's concerned about are gospel clarity, prayer priority, uh, men being calm in the church, women being modest and submissive, and then the leaders being qualified in doctrine and character. That's how he wants his church to behave. But practically, like you expand this out, you take it out of that historical situation for a moment and place it in our own time. This is us asking why we do what we do and how we do what we do from Scripture, God's Word. Not looking to the experts, not looking around for advice, not like, sticking our fi- I mean, licking our finger and checking the wind to see what actually would get us the biggest crowd. We are looking to God's Word to rule His house. And I don't know anybody, I don't know anybody that claims to be a Christian that would say, nope, I think that's a horrible idea. Who would actually look to God's Word? But we do. There are rival authorities to the Word of God existent in every church. The three most popular, you should probably write these down, it might be helpful, are tradition, pragmatism, and peer pressure. Tradition, pragmatism, and peer pressure. I don't know anybody who would claim to be a Christian that would say, the Word of God shouldn't dictate how the, the, how the church should operate, and yet they will allow their traditions, what they've always seen done, somehow rival what they see in the text. It isn't the text that is informing the, the why and the how of ministry. It is tradition that is informing the why and the how of ministry. Another one is pragmatism. 
pragmatism. How do we get more butts in the seats? Well, the experts tell us, and so then they start listening to the experts. They start reading the most recent church growth material, and they're not getting it from the Word. They're listening to the experts, and now we have a rival authority. So we've got pragmatism, we've got tradition, and then finally peer pressure. Peer pressure is, so what's everybody else doing? Well, all the other churches have such and such. All the other churches do such and such. But there is no, well, the Word of God says such and such. How and why? Those are the questions that have to be asked in this culture and age. Why do we do what we do? How does the Scripture say we do it? You know what the danger is of this? The Reformers actually recognize this. They recaptured when they were trying to rethink. They went back to the Bible. We sang this morning the song, uh, the Reformation song, which summarizes the five solas or onlys of the Reformation, and it begins with sola scriptura, only scripture, right? Scripture. As they were thinking about only scripture, what does scripture only tell us about church? They actually developed this principle, which is called the regulative principle. Maybe you've heard that if you've ever studied church history before. Basically, the regulative principle tells us that scripture itself should regulate the common activity of the church. What does that stand in contrast to? Well, the Roman Catholic Church that had adopted all of these extra-biblical practices to help out worship. The lighting of candles, the saying of the rosary, the selling of indulgences, uh, the the, the trappings surrounding communion saying that more was happening there than when what was actually happening. Uh, Confession. There were extras. That you, do you think those people started these extra traditions because they wanted to obscure the Word of God? No, they wanted to help it out. They meant well. And yet we saw that when we start to impact or influence, or excuse me, import our own ideas into how we worship God from something around us, we'll end up with something totally different than what God Himself intended. And so we see the church as God's household It's not just that, but he even modifies it one step further. Look at your text again, because he says, it is the household of God, which is, and now he's giving another name, which is the church of the living God. (laughs) It's interesting because your translation will say it is the church of the living God, but in Greek, there's no the, it's just ah, it's an arthrus which is a church of the living God. You are a church of the living God. It's not that all believers everywhere are the representation of the living God. That is true. But he's actually saying that this local gathering in court, this local group of believers who have partnered together for preaching, practicing of the ordinances, and the pursuit of corporate purity, this group of people, they were representing the living God. The living God was among them. You say, well, what's the big deal about the living God? It's opposed to the dead God. (laughs) He is active, not static. He is intervening. He is working. He is not just symbolic. There's a difference between a family celebrating the life of a deceased loved one by standing at a graveside and celebrating the life of a living loved one at a 50th wedding anniversary. What we celebrate here on Sundays, what what we are gathering to do is a representation of the living God Himself. 
It's not just symbolism of the God of the past. It is the active, ever-living God Himself who chooses to meet with His special people and His special people gathered in a special way. You may remember, and I wanted to help you with this, that we said last week that a local church just like this represents the whole. A local church represents the whole. It was December 7th, 1941, that the Japanese would surprise the thousands in attendance at Pearl Harbor. Thousands would die. And the attack on America truly was unfounded. It was the greatest loss of life that we'd experienced from a foreign combatant in the history of our nation. While there's debate about whether or not he actually said it, I think that the sentiment is true. Admiral Isroku Yamamoto said at the conclusion of that attack, I fear... We all, all we have done is to awaken a sleeping giant and to fill her with resolve. You know, there is a sense in which technically all Japan did was attack an Air Force base. At a newly founded state, way off the coast of mainland United States. But even the admiral himself recognized an attack on the part was an attack on the whole, and it mobilized the entire forces of the United States of America. That is how God's church is represented. What happens here impacts the entire thing. God, the living God, the the sleeping giant, if you will, is aroused when his church is affected. This little outpost, it may seem so small in light of everything else he is concerned about. This is the church of the living God, and it should inform how we act when we view it that way. You say, what happens here that's so special? Isn't God everywhere all the time? Yes, indeed, he is everywhere all the time, but he is in this gathering in a special way. John Stott said it this way, when the members of the congregation are scattered during most of the week, it's difficult to remain aware of this reality. But when we come together as the church, the ecclesia, the assembly of the living God, every aspect of our common life is enriched by the knowledge of his presence in our midst. In our worship, we bow down before the living God. Through the reading and exposition of his word, we hear his voice addressing us. We meet him at his table when he makes himself known to us through the breaking of bread. In our fellowship, we love each other as he has loved us. And our witness becomes bolder and more urgent. Indeed, unbelievers coming in may confess, according to 1 Corinthians, that God is really among you. Have you thought of that? So many people look for God in ecstatic experiences and isolation. They want that trip out to the mountains to be it. The the next time that they were on that walk on the beach. And yet God says, no, you really want to know my presence where I'm really represented. It's in the gathered people of God. This is where the living God is represented. And that changes your approach to ministry. I think it does it in two ways. It would change your approach to the local church in two ways. One, in your participation, and the other, in your preparation. Participation and preparation. Let me give you a little quiz. You can just take it there on your own. 
might serve you as you try to apply this point. Think of your, partic- I mean, your preparation for the gathering of the local church. Now, one would be what I would call accidental. Like, you wake up last second, you just throw some clothes on, and you just get in here because you just happen to remember that it was church on Sunday. That would be a one. Ten would be intentional, hyper-intentional, something that you prepare for, almost like a, a, a huge vacation. Uh, You you make sure that you have everything laid out, uh, you're confirming reservations, uh, you've packed days ahead of time, like you're you're making sure that everybody wakes up on time, that they make it to their flight. So that's a 10, and then there's a 1. When it comes to your preparation for the local gathering, how would you rate yourself? What's your standard number of preparation? I don't know what the number has to be. I don't want to be legalistic, but friends, I would think in light of the fact that we're meeting together to represent the living God, that his presence is among us, is probably going to be on the higher end of the scale than the lower. Not just preparation, but also think of participation. Uh, Participation would be, uh, out of one, would be just bored out of your mind, can't wait for this to be over. It would actually be just tolerating what's going on as opposed to actually participating in what's going on. Ten would be your favorite movie being replayed on the local theater big screen. Like you're all in and you're even wearing the costume. In light of this, how, what score would you give yourself in regard to participation? When you come to the gathering, is, is it higher, like you're in, you're recognizing what's happening here, like you're excited, or is it more, oh man, I'm ready for this thing to be over. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have to justify anything. I'm not doing any special pleading. Friends, I'm just telling you, this is God's house. He shows up here. He represents himself here in a special way. And if you're missing out on that, it's not his fault. You need to examine your preparation and your own participation because this, according to his word, is God's house. It is a place of his presence. But that's not all. Another picture is offered to promote appropriate action, and that is we must also see the church as a place for the gospel's protection. A place for the gospel's protection. Notice what Paul says as he continues with these pictures. Right in the middle of verse 15, he says, How you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. And now notice these two pictures. A pillar and buttress of truth. Now we'll get to verse 16 in a moment, but notice how the metaphor continues here. If the first one shows us really like what it's like to be at church, that the last two show us what it's like or what the church is trying to do. It says that the church gathered is a pillar and a buttress of truth. Pillar and support would be another word. Uh, These are architecturally uh, important terms. Think of something like a, a sound and stable building, something that is strong, something that is beautiful, In fact, many scholars believe that when Paul uses the phrase, the pillar and support of truth, it would have had special resonance with the Ephesians who were originally reading this letter. You may or may not recognize that Ephesus was the location for one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. 
Antipater of Sidon was the guy who came up with this, by the way. And listen, he describes it this way. I've set eyes on the wall of lofty Babylon, on which is a road for chariots, and the statue of Zeus by the Alpheus, and the hanging gardens, and the Colossus of the Sun, and the huge labor of the high pyramids, and the tomb of Mausolus. But when I saw the house of Artemis, the temple of Diana in Ephesus, that mounted to the clouds, those other marvels lost their brilliancy. And I said, lo, apart from Olympus, the sun never looked on aught so grand. Ephesus was the home of the temple of Artemis. We're talking one of the most magnificent structures of the ancient world. Its most dominant feature, its pillars. 127 of them approximately, 60 foot high. The structure itself was about 60% larger than the American football field. And it had a huge white marble roof. You know what it represented? It represented the presence of the local deity. Paul actually, when he first goes into Ephesus, experiences a riot in response to his preaching of the gospel where they say, great is Diana, great is Artemis. And here, Paul will say in light of this temple, great is the mystery of godliness. In the local church, there is this strong structure that houses something extremely important. And what is it? The text just says the truth. A pillar and buttress of the truth. But what does Paul mean by the truth? He's already defined his terms. Look in your Bibles at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. I'll start at verse 3. This is good, talking about praying for everyone. And it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. What is the truth? It is the truth of the gospel. It is the truth which saves. This isn't just general empirical truth. It is talking about the special truth of the gospel that actually enables people to be saved. That is the main responsibility of the local church. This gathering is a, protects and promotes the gospel. And that will change the way you look at church. Uh, one mentor of mine is always using this metaphor. I find it helpful. He says the local church is like one of the prongs that hold the diamond of the gospel up. The church itself is not the diamond. It's the prong that holds the diamond in place so that you can see it so that it's protected. And in a similar way, churches just like this one protect and promote the message of the gospel. You may have never thought of this, but it is the responsibility of congregations just like this one to ensure that the gospel message makes it to the next generation. You say, well, I thought it was a seminary. No. I thought it was denominations. No. Maybe it was theological societies. Nope. Publishers, nope. Parachurch organizations, absolutely not. Publishers, no. It is the local church first and foremost. And if we do have these other entities, they must then be founded upon the local church because it is squarely their responsibility. Maybe you've never considered that. But the demise of the gospel, if it so happens, happens because the local church is failing to protect it. 
It is clear that Paul is talking about the gospel here also because of verse 16. Look at it. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Great is the mystery of godliness. It's a, it's a strange phrase. So what do you, why does he call it a mystery? Why does he just call it the gospel? Well, mystery just refers to something that was not that clear in the Old Testament, made explicitly clear in the New Testament. Paul almost always uses it to refer to the gospel. The, the gospel particularly about salvation coming through God's Son, Christ Jesus. You say, wasn't that in the Old Testament? Of course it was in the Old Testament, but it wasn't that clear. In the New Testament, it was finally made crystal clear. It was explicit that Jesus Christ would be the instrument of this salvation for all mankind. B.B. Warfield, the classic Princeton theologian, kind of gave this analogy I find helpful. He says, in the Old Testament, we see the gospel like we would a room with no lights on. You can tell, even with the lights off, that there's furniture in the room, but you can't see the pattern of the furniture. You don't know the style. You have a general idea of where it's at, but it's obscured. In the New Testament, with the dawning of Jesus Christ, the light gets turned on. You can see the pattern, you can see the style, you can see the arrangement. Everything becomes clear. Here, in the New Testament, the gospel, obscured in the Old Testament, becomes evident, clear in the New. And we are responsible for protecting it because when we understand the mystery of the gospel, it will lead to godliness, that's the term, appropriate behavior, <laughs> the right house rules, uh, godliness is just another word for reverence or piety. Whatever it is that you think that God actually expects of you, that's what godliness is. He says when you are actually engaged in understanding this message of Christ, it has an impact really on who you are. There's a certain recipe for godliness, and it is, it is leveraged in the gospel itself. Notice what Paul means by the gospel. He makes it crystal clear, this mystery of godliness it may be kind of confusing to you, but it was clear for those in the first day. See those phrases there? And they're kind of offset in your text. It's because in the original language, it looks like poetry. Every one of these lines that you see in your Bible end with the same three Greek letters. And every one of them have a certain cadence. And so Paul here quotes this first century poem that someone had put uh, inspired of the Spirit as a summary of gospel truth. Here it was, he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So what in the world is this about? Well, it's clearly about Jesus. Notice that all the verbs are passive, the things that had happened to him. And particularly, what we're holding on to is the revelation of Jesus Christ. He was manifested in the flesh. He entered into humanity. All these arcane theological terms about like the hypostatic union and uh, the incarnation of Christ, those things matter. He says here in just a few lines, he was manifested in the flesh. You've got to get that. You've got to understand that he showed up in real human flesh. And here's another. He was vindicated by the Spirit. That means that, like, even though everyone criticized him as being an imposter and a fake and a fraud all through his ministry, at the end of his life he was vindicated or made right by the Spirit. Romans chapter 1, verses 3 to 4 actually make this exceedingly clear, where he 
says that it was in the revelation of Jesus Christ when he was raised from the dead by the Spirit that he was vindicated. The Jews and the Romans said, this guy's an imposter, kill him. And then the Spirit himself brought him up from the dead, showing that he really was who he said he was. Revelation of Jesus Christ matters. It is inherent to the gospel. It is not just about revelation, but there's two more lines, and that is the witnessing of Christ. He didn't just die and rise again, but it was seen by the entire universe. It says that he was seen by angels. Ephesians and Colossians also make it clear that Jesus showed up in the angelic realm in a special way to announce his triumph and his victory over the grave. But it not only happened in the invisible realm of the spiritual, but also Jesus was proclaimed among the nations. One of the greatest apologetics for the gospel, one of the greatest proofs that Jesus actually was who he said he was, was the fact that an entire movement of people rose up at that time and were willing to die for this particular message. It's one thing to lie, it's something else to die for a lie. He was proclaimed among the nations, not just the Jews, but listen to this, it spilled out over into multiple nations. This is important. This is what we're protecting. It is revelation, and it is his witnessing, and then there's one more, his reception. Jesus was victorious because people actually believed on him in the world. (laughs) They not only proclaimed it, but the message of Jesus has stood the test of time, and he has been believed on across the world, and he was taken up in glory. He now sits forever at the the right hand of his Father to one day return and rule and reign over this earth. It is mission accomplished. He did everything he said he was going to do. And in these six lines, we see one brief snapshot of what Paul says we are actually defending, and that is the message of Christ. Now, I want you to do a little comparison and contrast with me for a moment. The stuff that I just rushed through right there, and let's just be honest, you ever... Do you ever, as a, as a church member, do you ever find that boring? Do you ever, like, hope that the guy that's preaching would just get to the more practical stuff? You know, maybe, like, real life, you want, to, you want the real life stuff? There's a place for real life, and I want to make that clear, but First and foremost, we've got to protect this because it's our job. See, if we think it's the seminary's job or the publisher's job, we'll say, oh, we'll let them take care of that. I just want to do real life. But it's not their job. It's our job to defend this message. Friends, we are to be on guard for the good of the gospel in our gatherings. There's a huge difference between, between being at ease and on guard. At ease would be like, no offense if anyone works this particular job, but at ease would be most of the guards I see in the gated communities and areas around Naples. Now, some of them are like RoboCop and like won't let you in even if you have like a license, but some of them, well, most of them uh, are pretty chill. I mean, like I can see them in there watching Netflix I have to, like, wave them down to get them to come out. They don't even really ask for my ID. They're just like, oh, yeah, going through. Okay, that's at ease. Now, on guard would be someone who actually recognizes a threat and then engages with it. So, for example, I remember when living in D.C. and you would walk by the White House, those guys are on guard. 
I don't know why this happened, but twice while we were living there, a guy climbed the fence. I don't know where he was going to go after he got over it, but he climbed the fence, and they took him down. I mean, he didn't make it 30 foot past the border of the fence. That's on guard. You realize the presence of an imminent attack. You know, I think it's so easy for the church to be at ease because we're surrounded by one another so much. We think, oh, gospel's good, check. Everybody's got the message of Jesus. We're totally fine. But listen, friends, Paul's setting us up for something. He wants you to understand that you are always on guard because the gospel is always under attack. Look at chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. He's setting them up. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. People will try to pervert the gospel. It says, the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith. Like, if that was the latter times, where are we today? Friends, the gospel is regularly under attack, at least according to the Scriptures. And so how does this affect our behavior? We as a church then must be busy guarding the gospel. I really want to help here because I've experienced this just as a church member, not as a pastor. I... I know what it is to be disappointed with the educational flair of the congregational gathering. Sometimes you just wish, man, like, I wish there's a little more action. I feel like all I do is come here, like my little notebook, and I sit in a seminar and I learn stuff, and then I come to the next service and I learn stuff, and then we go to a small group and I learn stuff like, I'm tired of all the talking, let's get to the walking, let's, let's do something. I don't know what to tell you, friends, beyond the fact that Christ really set it up as an educational gathering. <laughs> Do you know what the word doctrine means? It means teaching. Like, that's all it means. The teaching of Christ. We're, we're protecting doctrine. We're protecting teaching. And that, like, engages us mentally. And so I don't think we should apologize for that. We learn. We live. We defend truth. If you think about what the church does, if you write out the behaviors of a church, it is preaching the gospel, picturing the gospel through the ordinances, and practicing the gospel. That's all we got. So many are so worried about making the congregation fun. (laughs) We want a fun church, but what about a faithful church? Hey, get me, please. I'm a young man. I'm not old, cranky. Uh, I'm okay with some flexibility. Listen, there's nothing wrong with fun and fresh and creative. The problem is when fun and fresh and creative comes at the cost of faithful, biblical, and obedient. Have you embraced what God himself wants you to accomplish here? Here, you've got two roles. We all do. Gospel proclamation, gospel protection. This isn't summer camp, it's the army. You know, I think this would inform, if we have the right mindset, I think it can be revealed in two ways, uh, in what we critique about the church and what we commend about the church. Think about it. What do you critique and what do you commend? Think about your, your three biggest complaints with this church right now. 
How many of those pertain to gospel proclamation or gospel practice? It's worth considering. And, by the way, for those of you who are fans, think about your three biggest commendations of the church right now. How many of those have to do with gospel proclamation and gospel practice? We're off base. We're thinking the church is something else. The biggest thing that we can praise about the church is that it's got a bunch of young couples. Or the preacher tells funny stories. Or we like the way the nursery looks. Like, that is not viewing God's church as a place of of gospel protection and proclamation. We, We need to be careful of that. And so, the church covenant in our own church first paragraph says this we agreed to do this as a church by the way i want to say it one more time we will work together for the continuance of a faithful evangelical that means gospel ministry in this church as we sustain its worship ordinances discipline and doctrines that's the first thing that we signed up to do so what does this look like yeah i'll give you some indications it it looks like taking good notes if you're a note taker It probably could look like leveraging seminars because we're not just doing those to kill the time. We're trying to equip you with gospel teaching and ministry. It probably means engaging with the small groups uh, so that you can actually translate what you're learning into action. Uh, It would mean you searching the scriptures, not just listening to what I say, but actually like going back and checking it out and making sure it lines up. And by the way, some of you do a fantastic job at all these things. Many of you do. And then finally, spreading the word. In the pastoral prayer, I was really concerned in the the portion on repentance. So many of us know so much truth, and yet we do not speak it in our spheres of influence. You hear rank heresy all the time. Guess what? Engage with it. And again, I'm not talking secondary kind of things. I'm talking primary gospel issues. (laughs) That's not the pastor's job alone. It is our job together as a church. So the church is not just a place for God's presence, but also a place for the gospel's protection. So this is God's church, and it is ours to act accordingly. I'll leave you with this. Our perspective affects our practice. Our perspective affects our practice. Like a wise doctor, our Lord is more concerned about the quality of care than the comfort of the waiting room. And when we buy into that mentality, when we embrace the quality of care, when we value what Christ Himself values, and we put that in its proper place, then we can begin to address the secondary issues. It's not about tradition. It's not about trendiness. It's about faithfulness. So how do you know if you're being faithful? How do we know if we're being faithful? I'll leave you with these two questions. I want you to uh, pretend that you gathered today to a place of God's presence. Knowing that to be true, how would things have looked differently if you did it all over again? If you woke up this morning and you were fully aware that you were headed to the place of God's special presence, what would have been different about how you came to church today 
as opposed to how you actually did come to church. Second question, how would today have been different if you viewed this as a place for the gospel's protection? You came, you're here, I'm glad. I'm so glad. But if you would have come today knowing that one of the primary objectives in this gathering was going to be equipping for the protection of the gospel, how would it have changed you? A couple of areas for you to consider, a few. I think it would affect your preparation, the way you prepare for church. I think it would affect your expectation, what you expect in this gathering. I think it would affect your participation, as we've already noted. I think it would affect your motivation. You'd be excited about what God is doing, and I think it would affect your implementation. You would walk out of here with some clear action items, thinking, I've got a job to do. Because we do have a job to do. And it's not the job the pastors gave us. It's not the job that we together as the people decided that we wanted. It is what the pater, the patriarch, the father of the house decided he wanted for his people. And so let us now commend ourselves to the Lord of this house and his son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, as we seek to live out the privilege of participating in his church. Let's pray. Or this place is yours. It's not the elders. It's not the people's. It's yours. Change our minds. Refresh our vision. So that we would see what you want your local church to be. Father, it's known all too well that if we don't buy into this common vision of the church and what you want for it. There are real consequences. It will affect our unity as a church. It will affect the effectiveness of our witness. And we could lose at least our opportunity, our part in upholding the diamond of the gospel. Keep us faithful in every one of these areas. And for those who are here, who have yet to embrace gospel truth about Christ, Lord, lead them today faith and repentance or give them the courage to have a conversation with one one of us afterward so that they might be saved and help us in this endeavor. In Jesus' name I pray and ask it. Amen.